Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 16, the whole psalm, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 437 in the Pew Bibles or 850 in the large print Pew Bibles. Psalm 16. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you again for your word which you have given to us. And God, we ask again that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word. God, that you would make us receptive to your message. That we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, that we would be challenged where we need to be challenged. God, that you would continue to grow us where we need to grow. And then in all of us, in all of it, you would bring us closer to you and closer to who you have made us to be. And this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Psalm 16, David writes, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And turning to Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9, and then skipping over to 18 through 23, we have the parable that Jesus tells, and then his explanation of what this parable means, which can be found on page 794 in the Pew Bibles, or 1520 in the large print Pew Bibles. Matthew 13 Verses 3 through 9. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then skipping to verse 18. It says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed along the path, sowed along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, 
they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Then our sermon text this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, which we found on page 973 in our pew Bibles, or 1872 in the large print. The tabernacle that we've described in the Old Testament was set up with varying kind of levels of access to God, where symbolically you have at the the very heart of the tabernacle is the most holy place, that holy of holies, where only the high priest could go, and even that only once a year. And as we've seen um, previous weeks and studies, that... um, that even the high priest couldn't go in there without sacrificing animals. But all of this was symbolic for getting to the presence of God and showed how far separated we were. But we have seen, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, and this is by way of recap, we've been waiting all this time for, so how do, what do we do? What do we do? Now that we know this, what do we do? This is the week we get to find out what we do. Because we've seen how Jesus is better than everything that came before. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the whole of the Old Covenant combined. He's better than the tabernacle itself. He's better than the priest. In fact, he is the great high priest uh, that goes between God and us. And he actually is the one sacrifice that didn't just cover over our sins for a time, temporarily and partially, but fully and completely. And so that's where we uh, kind of left off last week was with this idea that in Christ we have complete and total forgiveness, that God will remember our sins no more. And so we left it there, saying that what we should be doing this past week is reflecting on how God has forgiven us completely of our sins and thanking him for that. And that this week we would find out, okay, so now how do we live as people who have been forgiven by God. What is it that he has forgiven us for? You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says, For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're saved completely by grace. It's a free gift given to us uh, by God in Jesus Christ. Nothing we do to earn it or deserve it. But it's also done for a purpose. He has saved us for good works. Or we would do these things. So what is it that we're supposed to be doing? Now that we know that Jesus is our priest, that he is our sacrifice, and with that we turn to Hebrews 10, verse 19, and we find out, as the people of God what it is that we are to be doing because of what we now know and have confidence of in Christ. And here's what it is. 
Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, here it is, Jesus is the priest, he's the sacrifice, he's the way to God. Now let us do what? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let's sit there for a second. This is what it's all about. This is what it's always been about. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. This is what Adam and Eve didn't do when they turned away from him to see how life would be if they did it their own way. Not drawing near to God with a sincere heart. This is what Jesus got on to the Pharisees about so much, is that he said, you're whitewashed tombs. You know, on the outside, you look all clean, but inside, it's like a rotting dead corpse. Because you're trying to put on a show, it's like you're wearing a mask and saying, you know, yeah, 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 these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It doesn't say draw near to God on the outside, but be double-minded in all you do. It's actually the opposite. It's always been about drawing near to God, the author and the source of life itself, but drawing near to God with a sincere heart. Saying, you know, as we just read, I was saying, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for you. Saying to the God who created you and who has redeemed you in Jesus Christ, I want you more than anything else. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to have life with you forever. But not, not mouthing those words to make somebody around you happy. Not mouthing those words as a way of putting on a show and keep good standing in the community. But it says, knowing that Jesus has died for us, knowing that he is the high priest that goes between us and God, and he has made the way open, then the good news is now we can finally, all our sins have been dealt with, and we can finally draw near to God with a sincere heart. Come into his presence uh, with the full assurance that faith brings. Listen to this. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. As we mentioned last week, if God remembers our sins no more, that's what it talks about here, of having our hearts uh, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience so we don't have to approach God and and continually say, "I, I, I shouldn't be here. I've done, I've done too much wrong, and I, I know you don't really want me here. But instead, trusting that Jesus has taken care of that sin, we can approach God with confidence that it's been dealt with. The guilty conscience is done away with. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, if we are in Christ Jesus, we have nothing to fear as we approach God because it's all been dealt with. And for this purpose, that we could come to God. So no more of the guilty conscience. It's been dealt with. And having our bodies washed with pure water, in other words, being purified for the purpose he has for us. And so then it says, let us, there are three things here. First, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Second, let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess. For he who promised 
is faithful. To the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I love the this translation uses the word unswervingly. Because you've all heard that if you're driving along the road and a deer jumps out at you, you don't swerve. That is, I mean, that is common knowledge around here. And as we all know, people from not here don't know that. But, but you don't swerve because you'll actually do more damage to your car and yourself if you swerve than if you just keep on going straight. And if you remember, Jesus talks about you know the uh, road is wide and the gate is wide, the road is wide, uh, broad road that leads to destruction, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There's not a lot of room on the narrow road for swerving around. And so while the temptation may be, and kind of the instinctive uh, nature of it may be, you're on the narrow road and you say, this is the way I'm going. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus and I'm going to go straight drawing near to the presence of God. That's the way I'm going. But then distractions come up. Something jumps out at you and startles you. And the instinctive thing to do is to swerve and say, well, maybe I'm not really going to go that way. Or maybe I'll take a little detour and then I'll get back on that way. That's where I love this word. Let us hold unswervingly, unswervingly to the hope we profess. The hope, by the way, is just holding on to the promises of the eternal one, knowing that God, who has promised, is faithful. And if he says this is how it's going to be, then we know that's how it's going to be. And we can hold on to that no matter what distractions come at us from the whole rest of the world. Even if the whole rest of the world comes against it and says, it's not how it's going to go. We hold unswervingly and say, I know that God knows better than everything else, and I believe what he says, and that's where I put my faith and my trust and my hope, and I'm going to keep on, unswervingly, going towards God. And then, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, there is a story that is told from a long time ago of a man who had stopped coming to church, and so the pastor decided to pay him a visit one cold winter evening. And as he goes into his uh, house, the man welcomes him. The pastor doesn't say a word. He just walks in, goes straight over to the fireplace, has a nice roaring fire going, takes, picks up the tongs, and pulls one of the uh, hot coals out of the fire, just moves it over about two feet outside of the fire, and sets it down. Puts the tongs up, sits down, and watches the coal. Doesn't say a word. Can you imagine a preacher that doesn't say a word? And then, in a few minutes, the glow dims, the coal becomes cold, dark, and hard. Again, without saying a word, the pastor picks up the tongs, grabs the coal, places it back near the other coals, and sure enough, it starts to glow and warm and become bright and hot again. The pastor turns to the door and starts to leave. And the man says, with a tear in his eye, thank you, pastor, for the fiery sermon. <laughs> I'll see you in church on Sunday. I think it's a good illustration of what's going on. Um, 
When this says, you know, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, that's not a new thing. It happens a lot now. People get in the habit of not meeting together instead of in the habit of meeting together. But I'm glad that it doesn't just give us the negative side of this. That it doesn't say, uh, you know, quit not coming to church. That would, and, and that's it. But it gives us the positive too. And pretty much in the Bible, when it when there is a uh, something to stop doing or not do, then it will follow it up with. But here's what you are to do. And most of the time, it's those things that we're not to do. We're not to do because they're cutting us off from the life that God has for us. And so it'll say, don't do these things. Because they're hurting you, do this instead. This is the life that God has for you. And this is one of those times where it says, not giving up meeting together, as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, our gathering together, even on a Sunday morning, is to be one of the habits of our lives and for the purpose of encouraging one another. So that together, as we draw near to God, we do it together. And we can encourage one another. This, by the way, uh, not only do we see that with the coal that we saw in the story, but you know it's true with any, uh, any new change of life you want to make. If you want to uh, lose weight or if you want to start a new exercise plan or if you want to uh, make it through some difficult book, if you've got somebody that you are doing that together with, if you have a group of people that you d- commit together, we're going to do this, you are much more likely to have that change in your life stick than if you just try to go it on your own. Can you go it on your own? Yeah. But it will usually end up like the coal separated from the fire. And so we come together not to... Uh, here's another part of it, by the way. This is not a matter of um, looking down on those who didn't come as though... <laughs> Well, we've got it right because we're here. I mean, this is, you could come to church every single week and not be a Christian at all. And you've heard the expression, being in a garage doesn't make you a car, and being in a church doesn't make you a Christian. When it says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, that's what this is about. We are coming to God. We are to be here uh, for the purpose of encouraging one another. If we're ever at church looking down on people who aren't there, or well, you haven't been here in a while, and so you know, shame on you for that, that just shows our hearts are in the wrong place. The whole point of gathering together is to encourage one another along this way. We say we have been, we are those who are wanting to draw near to God to experience this life in Christ, and we want to do that, and we know that the temptations of the world are going to try to get in the way of that. We know that the distractions of the world, that those, uh, what was it that Jesus said about the thorns, the, um, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, they can choke it out. We know those things are real, and we know they're all around us. And so when we come together, It's not to shame anybody. It's not to make anybody feel guilty. That guilty conscience should be done with anyway. But we get together to encourage each other along the way, to help each other, uh, to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Um, But it's also something where it needs to be um, kind of the habit of our life to do that, or else it probably won't happen, to be honest. I was talking to my uh, two older sons uh, last week. They recently made it a one full calendar year without having any candy or soft drinks of any kind. There was a financial incentive. <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you, 
I was offered the same financial incentive as a child, and I made it about three days and said, not worth it. (laughs) They made it the full year of uh, no candy, no soft drinks at all for a whole year. And so we were talking last week in, uh, in our youth group and said how now that they can have those things again, they've made it through the year, was it harder to say no to candy and soft drinks during that year? Or is it harder to say no now when they're offered to them? And even though they'd made it through an entire year, you would think, well, now that they've made it through that whole year, they've practiced saying no enough, it would be so easy. No. So it was actually easier during that year where they had decided up front, I'm not going to have it. They were still tempted with it all the way along, but the decision had already been made. I'm not going to do that. And now the decision's not made, and so they have to make the decision every single time it's offered. Yes or no? Which way is it going to be? And so to resist now is actually even harder. And I think that's one of the things that there are a million applications of that principle, by the way, of that deciding uh, up front what it's going to be. And so I think that's part of this holding unswervingly to the hope we profess, saying, this is where I am, this is where I'm going, and I may be tempted other directions, but no, the decision's been made. I am united with Christ, and that's the way I'm going. And a part of that means staying united to the people of God. When we go on vacation, I have found a lot of encouragement as we will uh, end up in churches all over the place. We don't know anybody there. We just There was one day we were just driving, and we knew that it was, was going to be a driving day, and so we looked ahead of time online and said, we think we're going to be about at this place at 11 o'clock. So is there a church around having a worship service? There was. We went in and joined them. It was wonderful. Stuck around a little bit afterwards and talked to the people there. We found that we were greatly encouraged to see these kinds of Christians uh, in another part of the world, another part of our country. And, uh, and they were encouraged as well. It was very, very good. But it's the kind of thing where... The reason we did that is because the decision had already been made. If it's a Sunday morning, it doesn't matter where we are. I bet we can find some other Christians that we can gather together with. And uh, if that decision had not been made in advance, if we had been deciding that morning, are we going to go to church or are we not? Probably wouldn't have. And we would have missed out. We would have been uh, the worse off for it. So this is one of those where I would highly recommend that we make that a habit Uh, not because if you go to church, you're a good person, and if you don't, you're a bad person, or if you go to church, God loves you more, and if you don't, he doesn't. No, not at all. None of that. None of that. But that we come together to worship him together and to draw near to God with sincere hearts together and to encourage one another along that way because we all all are weak, and together uh, we can be much stronger as we encourage each other along the way. Okay, we don't have much time left, And now we get to a really tricky section. I did that on purpose. Uh, (laughs) I do want to explain this part, though, because it is a tricky part that has caused a lot of people unnecessary uh, problems. And so I want to hopefully explain this clearly in a way that we can be challenged by it if we need to, but also not unnecessarily frightened by it. Here's what it says. Starting in verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Yikes. Talk about a fiery sermon. 
If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received a knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Has anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses? How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This section is kind of scary. And it should be. It should be a realistic warning. However, let's make sure we don't misunderstand it. It comes at this part of the book for a reason. It comes after we've already found out that if we are in Jesus, he's taken the sin. We don't have to worry about that anymore. But what this is saying, the way that it gets misunderstood is people read this and go, Oh no, I prayed that Jesus would forgive me, and then I sinned again. And it says that if we've sinned after we... um, after we've received Jesus, that there's nothing left. Like, he's, he took that sin, but now I'm doomed. And people cry out in despair. But if you look closely, that's not what it says. It doesn't say, if we sin after we've received Jesus, because guess what? We all do that. But what it says is, if we deliberately keep on sinning, if we deliberately keep on sinning, that's the problem. Let me put it this way. Um, if you think about the difference between a map and a compass, a lot of times people look, you know, think of their life, their spiritual life as a map, and they say, okay, if this is where God is, let me see if I can figure out how far away I am from God. And, and the question is, the same one that uh, teenagers ask all the time of, <laughs> in a different area, how far is too far? Which is always the wrong question. How far is too far? As though you're saying, how far can I go away from God before he finally cuts me off? How far can I go where he will still uh, be okay with forgiving my sin and letting me into heaven anyway? The deal is it's not a map. It's a compass. Because the distance is not the issue. It's the direction. And so no matter how far away we are from God, if our heart is pointed to him and we say, this is what I want. God, I want you more than anything else. Open arms. You remember the story of the prodigal son. He had done everything completely the opposite of what his father wanted for him. But when he came home, he said, I want to be with you. And his father said, welcome home. You are a part of the family. No questions asked. Done deal. But then there was his older brother. The older brother who had stayed there, who had actually been doing the things that his father had asked him to do. But you see at the end of the story, his heart was not right. He didn't want to be with the father. All he wanted was the stuff from the father, and he's left outside because he refuses to come in. It's not a matter of the distance on a map. It's a matter of the direction as with a compass. And what this is saying is if we deliberately keep on sinning, what we're saying is we're saying this is the way to God, and I want to go this way. No matter how close or far we are, if our hearts are set the wrong direction. And especially after having received uh, this knowledge of Jesus. 
and you say, I understand that Jesus died for sin. I understand that he, uh, that his sin, or that his death on the cross could cover my sin. I, I understand that. And I understand that God has given this to me, this free gift of his son. And you say, you know what? Don't care. I'm doing my own thing. And that's what this is saying. If that's what we do, if we hear this message and we're like the, um, what was it, the, uh, the three types of seed that Jesus talked about, the three, three types of soil, I mean, it's all the same seed. The three types of soil, if we reject it, it bears no fruit. It doesn't grow. It doesn't change uh, our lives. And so we don't get to say then, well, I, I live whichever way I want to. I go my own direction. And uh, I don't care because, you know, I heard one time that uh, Jesus will forgive me anyway, so whatever. There's no. You don't, get to, you don't get to count on that then. If you are not drawing near to God with a sincere heart, which is what the whole death of Jesus was about, if instead you're trying to see how far you can get away from him, you don't get to expect the promises that he's offered in Jesus. What you get to expect is the same thing that all the enemies of God expect. The judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But verse 32, he comes back and says, Remember those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. And what he's saying now is to the people he's writing to, this is a real, this is a real warning, but I know this isn't the case in your case. I want you to look backwards, and I want you to look forwards. I want you to look back to when you had first received Jesus and the ways that you did stand strong, even in hard times. And that shows that your faith was sincere. And if you did it then, you can do it now. And then I want you to look forward at what is coming. And as you do that, uh, you will persevere and stay strong, holding unswervingly to the hope we uh, profess. He says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Can you imagine that as a Christian, some group comes in and says, because you're a Christian, I'm going to take your house. And as a Texan, you say, I'll get my gun. Um, But apparently these Hebrews didn't go for that. Instead, they responded joyfully and said, Have at it! <laughs> Take my house! We go, what? How do you do that? And he says, you joyfully... Uh, I lost my place. Joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. In other words, the only way you could do this is because you already had your grasp loosely on the things of earth and tightly on the things of heaven. And so when they said, we're going to take your house, and you said, oh, this whole thing? It's not going to last that long anyway. But you know, Jesus has actually uh, promised that he's going to go and prepare a place for me, and that is going to be a much better place than this thing anyway, and it's going to last a whole lot longer. So you want the house? Take the house. I got better things coming. That's the only way you can do that. That's the only way you can respond joyfully is when you have had a loose grip on the things of the earth and a tight grasp on the things of heaven. And so he uses this as an encouragement to them and says, this is the way that you were living. If this is how you were living, then you know your heart was in the right place. Keep on going. 
And so he says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For, and then he has a few quotes here, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. He says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We have talked before and we will talk again about how faith stands for F-A-I-T-H, following actively, I trust him. It's not a matter of what we believe in our heads, but how we are living by trusting him based on what we know to be true about him. James reminds us that, he says, you believe that uh, Jesus is the son of God? Guess what? So do the demons. They believe that too. They know it's true. They just don't trust him with their lives. They don't uh, follow him. There's the difference. That's what it means to live by faith trusting that Jesus has made the way open to life with God and so living in that trust. There are many examples throughout the Old Testament of people who, when it was time to move with God, said, I don't know, that looks scary. You have the people coming out of Egypt who in the wilderness said, yeah, he brought us out of Egypt, but only so we could die in the wilderness. I don't think he's ever going to give us a good land. They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. Because they didn't trust God. Later, those same people, as God actually leads them to the edge of the promised land, they send 12 spies into the land. They come back out. Ten of them say, yeah, it's a good land, but oh, the people living there, there's no way God can actually fulfill his promise. There's no way that he's actually going to give us this land. He's led us here to die. And guess what? They die. He says, if you do not trust me to bring you in, then you're not going in. But there were two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who came out and said, this land is great. And yeah, there are people there, but I mean, if God says he's going to give it to us, he's going to give it to us. So let's go. (laughs) And they got outvoted. But of all of them, those are the two that got to go in. Many years later, after all the rest who had said, we don't trust him, ended up dying outside the land. Joshua and Caleb, the two who said, we trust God, they get to see the promises fulfilled as they live by faith. We will see a lot more of that next week and hopefully in a shorter time frame. But for this week, let us hold unswervingly, unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Let us draw near to God with sincere with a sincere heart, and let us uh, let's encourage one another. Always, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.